But yeah, the your favorite topic, great. Okay. That's fine. Um, all right, what do we think of Herrick? <clears throat> no? No, it's good. No, it's good. <laughs> I, like the, I like the simple ones like cherry ripe and uh, like the little short. I don't know. He talks. He does a lot. He does a lot with nature, which I like. Uh huh. I like that. The vine. Yes. That's a great that one's a good one, but I'm kind of yeah, confused. It's refreshing to read nature poetry. Yeah, I like it. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> after After Dunn yeah. and Johnson. Yeah. yeah. They have some similar poems. They have a few like matching. Like, yeah. What are you thinking? The flea and the ver- and the. Uh, to the virgins to make much of yeah. time. Yeah. 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 Or even his farewell to Zach, kind of. Maybe not. <laughs> he said his farewell to Zach. Yeah. Didn't you hear what that was? Oh, sorry. <laughs> but I hear my name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Yeah, his farewell to, to Zach. <laughs> um, yeah, and um, he has and all the poems on Ben Johnson, who um, he likes so much. And then there's the Hourglass, which is uh, the love version of Ben Johnson. The Hourglass, well, it's love and death, as it is for Ben Johnson. That is, it's... Uh, the, t- the uh, liquid in the hourglass Herrick is talking about. Um, so it's an hourglass. It's, uh, I guess it's the kind of thing that you can buy now, hourglasses with liquid in them, with colored liquid. And he says they're tears of lovers. Um, yeah, so you can feel um, how important Ben Johnson was to him and also the same classical poets, Latin poets, who were important to Ben Johnson as well. Um, yeah, I think his his uh, delightful poems are really, really, really delightful. Um, and um, people just, the ones that people really, really love are the short ones um, on the whole. And um, he's also, I think, really good at um, talking about what he's trying to do in his poetry. Um, he, he does what Johnson does. He names himself in his poetry. Um, he uh, Johnson names Johnson. Herrick names Herrick. Um, and... Um, he talks about, for example, in the second poem um, in Hesperides, when he would have his verses read. Um, in sober mornings, do not thou rehearse the holy incantation of a verse. So it's not good to be reading poetry in the morning, those of you who were um, got up early today. Um, in sober mornings, do not thou rehearse the holy incantation of a verse. But when that men have both well drunk and fed, let my enchantments then be sung or read. So the idea is that they, they should be enchantments, um, uh, things that are like um, wonderful spells, um, things that um, are also enchanting to the listener. Um, so the idea is that, I think the idea is something that... Um, you both overhear a spell. That is, if a magician um, or a mage is um, pronouncing a spell, you know, it can be really cool in um, uh, a fantasy uh, world in Harry Potter or um, Lord of the Rings or whatever to hear how how interesting the spells recited by the wizards are. Um, but here the spells are supposed to work on you as well as um, being wonderful um, uh, to listen to. Um, they're enchanting in two senses, enchanting in the um, magical sense that they're incantations of some sort that will cause something to happen, but also enchanting to the hearer. And those two senses become one. 
That is, um, what's enchanting about them is hearing an enchantment. And um, because you hear the enchantment, which is, which is enchanting, you're the one who's enchanted. Um, and that, I think that's what's in that word. That's what's in his poetry. Let my enchantments then be sung or read. When laurel spirits in the fire, and when the hearth smiles to itself and gilds the roof with mirth, what does the hearth smiles to itself mean? How does a hearth smile to itself? The fire. Yeah, it's it's like a it's like a merry fire. Um, again, it's just a beautiful. Um, I think it's just a, a beautiful description. A hearth smiling to itself. Um, it's what's called sometimes called. Um, well, it, the the person who invented this term is the nineteenth century critic, amazing, central, absolutely. Um, um, Essential 19th century critic of art and literature, John Ruskin, who came up with the, with uh, one of his famous phrases is the term the pathetic fallacy, and uh, that's a term you should know if you ever take the GREs, the pathetic fallacy, and it's not oh my god that fallacy is pathetic, <laughs> um, it's not like the pathetic fallacy that led us into war with Iraq, um, it's the fallacy of pathos. That is, it's the fallacy of ascribing to um, non-conscious entities um, the vocabulary, the um, 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 terminology of motive and feeling. Um, so his examples are things like a ravenous fire, an angry storm. Um, or, or um, you know, the ra a, a raging storm, um, and um, Is the. It different than personification? Well, it's different from personification. I got up to close the door right then, in order to underline the fact that I said different from when you said different than. Um, it's different from personification, or if you're British, you would say it's different to personification, um, in that personification is something we notice. That is, if you, um, in an ode, if you address the Wild West Wind and, um, and give it instructions for what to do, be thou spirit fierce, my spirit, be thou me impetuous one. Um, or if you address a nightingale and say, um, thou wert not born for death, immortal bird. Um, in both those cases, it's, that's clear that what you're doing is personifying. Uh, the thing about the pathetic fallacy is it's kind of something that we don't think about. Um, it's the relationship to the world we have um, when we kick the chair we just stubbed our toe on. Um, it's a kind of um, instinctual, unthinking, um, or Ill unconsidered um, uh, imputation of motive to something that's motiveless. And it's not that if someone asked, um, we wouldn't know that we were doing it. Um, it's just it seems the right word, and yet it can be a mislead. It can be misleading. Um, and um, it doesn't matter that, it, that it's misleading either. It's just it's a way, and for Ruskin, it's in part a way just of saying that we humanize the world, not that we personify it, which is going too far. Um, 
you know, that starts becoming Disneyfying it. Um, the little plates fly up into the air and dry themselves. Um, but it's rather that um, we interact with the world as um, a place of action rather than a place of event. Um, um, action philosophically is when a conscious entity does something. Event is just when something happens. Um, and um, that can be a good thing. That makes the world rich, um, seeing the world as, uh, as um, something that we interact with. So when King Lear um, does personify the storm in Lear, um, blow winds, crack your cheeks, rage, blow. Um, and then he calls the elements of the storm, I tax you not, you winds with unkindness. Um, I never called you children, um, gave you kingdom. But even then, he is kind of calling them children by saying, I never did call you that. Um, and then he says, and yet I call you servile ministers. Um, so there what Lear is doing is he really is personifying. Um, but before you quite get there, what you can do, and this is sort of what the pathetic fallacy is, the way it generally functions in literature and in art, is that the world is um, a place that matters to you um, as, a, as a person yourself. And the mattering of the world is a mattering which is like the mattering of other people. Um, so it's not um, personifying, in which case you're really turning all persons into cartoons. If you personify nature, um, there's a sense in which you're taking away um, the humanity of other human beings. Um, you know, just think of the flatness of cartoons, you know, even of Pixar, compared to um, um, the depiction of real people. And um, to the extent that you personify even the most gorgeous personifications are also a kind of flattening of human relation. Um, but the pathetic fallacy wouldn't quite be that. The pathetic fallacy would rather be that um, humans are the gold standard of um, your interactions with things outside yourself or your interactions with other people. Um, that would be the gold standard of that kind of interaction. And um, then the rest of the world would be an echo of that, um, would be part of that being. The, the being of the world would matter to you the way people matter, whereas in personification you risk having people matter to you only as much as other, um, as other beings matter. Um, if, you if you start personifying the world, the risk is that you'll just start personifying people, and um, that's a loss if you personify people. Um, you have to get deeper than that. So the pathetic fallacy is going towards that depth. Um, and so, you know, a lovely example of it, I think, is the hearth smiles to itself. Um, it's not the same thing as the hearth smiling at you. That would be a personification. And when the hearth smiles at me, um, I wink back. Um, but smiling to itself is just like, it's your own good mood, which is, um, somehow expansive enough that um, it feels like the hearth is smiling to itself without that being a personification. So I see why you want to call it that, but do you see, do you see what happens if you don't quite call it um, that? Um, so when laurel spurts in the fire and when the hearth smiles to itself and gilds the roof with mirth. Um, so um, 
it's just, you know, it's, it's fun. Everyone is happy. Um, gilds the roof with mirth is a way of saying that the whole room is full of mirth and, and the, you can just feel it going up to the ceiling. When up the thirst is, is raised and when the sound of sacred orgies flies, and orgies there doesn't mean what you think it means, around, around, um, that is around of um, alcohol, and, you know, who's going to buy the next round, but also a round of singing, like singing rounds, which you all did in nursery school, right? Row, row, row your boat is a round. Okay. Um, when the rose rains and locks with ointments shine, let rigid Cato read these lines of mine. Um, the idea being that um, even Cato will um, be enchanted um, when there's enough good fellowship going around. Um, do we, the, the poem, did anyone write, um, some of you still owe me papers, did anyone end up writing on the hawk cart or harvest home? Okay, so we should spend a little time on that, but should, do you guys want to read the vine? Yeah. All right, uh, go for it. Oh, okay. I dreamed this mortal part of mine was metamorphosed to a vine, which crawling one and every way enthralled my dainty Lucia. I think you should say Luciae. Luciae. Methought her long, small legs and thighs, I with my tendrils did surprise, her belly, buttocks, and her waist, by my soft nervelets were embraced. About her head I writhing hung, and with rich clusters hid among, the leaves her temples I behung, so that my Luciae seemed to me young Bacchus ravished by his tree. My curls about her neck did crawl, and arms and hands they did enthrall, so that she could not freely stir, all parts there made one prisoner. But when I crept with leaves to hide those parts which maids keep unespied, such fleeting pleasures there I took, that with the fancy I awoke. And now, uh, me, this flesh of mine, more like a stock <laughs> than like a vine. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. So, it's a little Pretty bit... Wood. <laughs> Excuse me. Alternative title. <laughs> Sorry. Oh my God, Wait, what did you call it? Morning awesome. wood is the yes. alternative title, or I supplied the alternative title part. Yes. Uh, yeah, it's. Uh... <laughs> awesome. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So it's a little bit like tentacles. It really is. Sorry. <laughs> I just know that that's a motif, and this made me think of that. In it is a motif. Certain Japanese. In certain so. Japanese animes. Yes. Um, tentacle sex. Yes. Um, Ew. What? I know, right? Well, it's like um, myth, some of their myths. God, you guys are so innocent. Well, so, <laughs> you guys are just so innocent. Anime sex other, is weird. That's well, weird. the other the other thing is that there was some law where it was like hugely punishable to depict like penetration of a vagina by a penis. Like it just was horrible. So right. That, That's better. That was their loophole. <laughs> That's <what. laughs> Sorry, I'll be right. Cartoon sex is. Not acceptable. Just <laughs> 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 not. Thank you, being for being our moral content. Yes, really. No. I, th I think Ben. I don't know if Ben Johnson would agree with you. Done. I don't know who would agree among the poets that we're reading. I'm not sure. Maybe Herbert. He would be against it. It's possible. I'm not sure he would though. Remember that poem, "The Bag." Um, but um, certainly not Rochester. Certainly not Rochester. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's an erotic dream. I don't know if you got that. <laughs> uh, but
but it's it's also interesting that he's dreaming of her um, as being like um, Bacchus, ravished by his tree. Um, that is that um, it's uh, he's the vine going around the. Um, going around Lucie, but she is like the god Bacchus, um, male, and um, generally vines are um, in depictions which are iconograph- which are old iconographies of trees and vines as a, as a kind of embrace, vines um, embracing trees, trees supporting vines. Generally, it's the tree that's male and the vine that's female, um, and there's something really nice about this reversal here. Um, and, um, yeah, it's, um, I think it's, it's sexy enough. Um, and then he wakes up and discovers, um, yeah. Um, so, um, yeah. Where does the motif of vines being female come from? It's just, it, the idea is, is that it's, um, that, well, it's a sexist motif, just so you know. As many are. As, as some are. <laughs> in, in the history of literature, there have been such things. Um, and the idea is that the tree is supporting the vine. The, uh, the vine clings to the tree. The tree is upright um, and stiff and strong. And, um, and the vine goes around the tree. Um, I mean, there, there, there are many different... Um, Ways of seeing of of seeing why that would fit in iconographically, um, and as I say, there is something really neat about the fact that even when Herrick is dreaming, at least the way he's describing the dream in this poem, um, it's the kind he he dreams heterosexual male eroticism um, as fluidity rather than um, and flexibility and and just the possibility of going anywhere. Um, and and richness rather than um, uh, stiffness and hardness and and inflexible um, inflexibility, um, and so it really says something about his poetry that uh, that's what he likes to do in his poetry is is um, go anywhere and go there in as sweet and smooth and lovely a way as possible, um, and. Um, one of the poems that you read for today is also um, a poem about how hard he works on his poems. That is, were he to die now, he would want his mistress to burn his book rather than to leave it unperfected. Um, do you remember that one? That's um, uh, Mr. Quested Million. Yeah. Uh, what page is that? One eighty-four. Oh, I skipped it. Oh, right. Yes, right there. Um, yeah, Julia, if I chance to die, ere I print my poetry. <laughs> yeah, I think. Julia, if I chance to die, ere I print my poetry. I most humbly thee desire to commit it to the fire. Better twere my book were dead than to live not perfect dead. Mm. Um, so these poems feel um, completely easy. Um, at least the great ones do. They feel um, like they're documents of, of ease. Um, and yet he's saying, burn them if, um, if I don't get them exactly right. Um, as Yeats will say um, in Adam's Curse, a line may take us hours 
maybe, but if it does not seem a moment's thought, all our stitching and unstitching hath been naught. Um, so it sure doesn't, you know, this is the question that we've been talking about again and again in this class. Nothing in done seems like a moment's thought. Um, everything done seems like, um, boy, must he have strained <laughs> to get this poem into the, um, into the form he gets it into. Um, that's the wreathing iron pokers into true love knots part of done. Um, but in Herrick, it does feel like a moment's thought, um, just a sublime moment or a wonderful moment and a wonderful thought in that wonderful moment. Um, but he is telling you, actually, it seems that way, but it isn't. Um, it takes a lot to make it seem like it doesn't take anything. Um, actually, I like the poem that comes right after that, also, Dreams. Here we are all, all day. Sorry, here we are all by day. By night we're hurled by dreams, each one into a several world. Um, just the strangeness of the fact that every night we go off into our different several worlds. Um, and then there's uh, Delight and Disorder on the next page. You like that one? Yeah, I like this one. Read it. No. Read it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> a sweet disorder in the dress, kindles and clothes and wantonness, a lawn about the shoulders thrown into a fine distraction. Shall a distraction. I knew you were going to an erring lace which here and there enthralls the crimson stomach air, a cuff neglectful and thereby ribbons to flow confused lie, a winning wave deserving note in the tempestuous petticoat, a careless shoestring in whose tie I see a wild civility, to do more bewitch me than when art is too precise in every part. Yeah, so um, it's, it's a way of dressing. Um, it's a kind of um, just, well, bewitching, not enchanting in this case, but bewitching um, casualness and dress. Um, it's the kind of thing that fashion photographers now work really, 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 really hard to get um, in models. Um, but yeah, what he's saying is that um, it's that disorder which um, humanizes and therefore eroticizes um, the uh, woman he's looking at, um, the, the person he's interested in. Um, and um, again, you could take this as a poem about, how to, about what he's trying to do in his poetry. Um, that is, that it's um, what, he's, what he doesn't want to appear to be is too precise in every part. Um, if you, if it's clear, um, if you can see the art in a poem and how um, carefully done it is, the care with which it's done will take away from it. Um, the care with which it's done um, doesn't give you that wild civility, which is a phrase he uses at least um, twice in his poetry. Um, and that's a very Herrick phrase, a wild civility. Um, it's an oxymoron. Um, that is, uh, civil life is life in the city. Wild is, uh, is in the wilderness. But a wild civility is, that's just, that's just pure pleasure. Um, it's not dangerous, but it's, but it's wild. It's great. Um, and um, 
there's a sense in which that kind of um, delight and disorder, that wild civility, is is what you're always um, getting in him. Let's look just to, to make sure we have enough time to look at it. Um, at uh, the hawk card, and then I assume we'll have time to look at some other poems. But <coughs> this is uh, page 197. Um, the hawk harvest home to the right honorable mild May Earl of Westmoreland, whom he quite liked. You know that he wrote another poem um, to him as well about how much he liked mild May's um, poems. Um, but this poem is, um, so this poem is about the harvest, um, that time of wealth and richness. Um, that is when all the work of the year is now paying off. Um, and there are always harvest festivals. Um, harvest festivals mean that you have now reaped what you've sown, and it's really hard work, but now there's also all this wealth. Um, if you know Keats is not quite owed to autumn, um, that is presented as in this line, season of mists and mellow fruitfulness. Um, that's what autumn is. So um, here's Harvest Home. Um, who wants to read, I guess we'll go through it sentence by sentence. So who wants to read um, through line eight? Let's just go around the room, Zach. Come, sons of summer, by whose toil we are the lords of wine and oil by whose tough labors and rough hands we rip up first and reap our lands. Crowned with the ears of corn, now come, and to the pipe sing harvest home. Come forth, my lord, and see the cart, dressed up with all the country art. Thank you. Okay, so who are the sons of summer? Farmers? Yeah, um, those who are doing the actual work, the farm laborers. So come, sons of summer. Um, a lovely highfalutin phrase for them. Um, that's not, as they're working in the fields, they're not thinking to themselves, well, we are the sons of summer as we work. Um, but it's a, it's a lovely moment of, of elevation, you could say, um, for them. Come, sons of summer, by whose toil we are the lords of wine and oil. Um, why? Just paraphrase. This isn't hard, but just so we your work allows us grapes and, and olives yeah yeah your work um, you plant and grow and harvest grapes and olives um, wine therefore and oil by whose tough labors and rough hands we rip up first then reap our lands rip up meaning plow yeah um and then reap, meaning having grown what we um, sowed after we plowed. You know that you know what you do, right? First, you break up the soil. Um, that's plowing it. That's why there are plows. It's in order to turn the soil and break it up and um, and have a place in order where you can plant. Um, then you plant. Um, then things grow, and then you reap what you have sown. Um, sowing and planting, um, same thing. So um, we rip up first, then reap our lands. Um, rip and reap, that, the point is that echo, that ripping turns to reaping. Um, the word reap is the obvious word to use in the line. It's the obvious word of harvest. Rip is not an obvious word, and that's how you know 
that he wanted that connection from rip up to reap. Um, do you see how that works? That is that it's, it's always as um, a principle of reconstructing the writing of poetry, which is a really good principle for reading poetry. There are other ways to read poetry. It's not, um, that's not the only um, um, approach to a poem one should take, but it's an approach that one should always have available um, to reconstruct um, the choices that a poet makes in writing. And um, you can do that. I mean, the obvious way of doing that in lots and lots of poems is to decide which word the poet um, was looking for a rhyme for. When you have a rhymed pair, um, it's usually the case that one word was the right word, and the other word was the word that rhymed with the right word. Um, the reason violets are blue is that I want to end my little Hallmark card with the word you. So it's not roses are red, violets are blue, but what can I rhyme with blue? Uh, um, sugar is sweet, but I've got the flu. Eh, not quite, I don't know, not quite tender enough. Um, sugar is sweet, I'm in Timbuktu. I don't know, maybe. Um, I know Kung Fu. I know Kung Fu, right. Um, so the point is that um, the reason violets are blue is so that you can have a rhyme with you, and then you get in some, and you think, well, okay, what should be blue? I don't know, flowers, it's probably better than um, uh, roses are red, houseflies are blue. Eh, I don't know if she's going to like that. Um, so, um, but the point is you can often tell, not always, in a perfect poem you shouldn't be able to, but you can often tell, um, which is the word that the poet sought a rhyme for. And um, it's worth doing because it's a way of um, reconstructing the, th the thought that went into the poem. So here you can feel, again, it's just as a principle, that um, reap is um, the obvious word in a poem like this. Rip is not, um, which means that he wanted to come up with a word that would interact with reap in an interesting way. And the interesting interaction here is that it's the opposite. Um, that is to rip up is to be destructive. And then to reap is um, to be destructive in one way, but in a far gentler and more appropriate way. Um, ripping up is, uh, it's all ripped up, but now look, it produced all this wealth which we reap, which is to say, cut down, take away. Um, but that's, that's a gentle form of, a gentle and appropriate and somehow crowning form of what ripping up is the um, um, much more violent and um, un, um, um, rich version of what reaping becomes. So it's not that we're reconstructing this to see how it, how it is that Herrick um, managed to come up with an alliteration. It's we're reconstructing it to see that the reason he wanted an alliteration there is to focus the distinction between ripping and reaping 
um, and um, the the um, crowning and beautiful end of a process that begins with labor and violence. Um, so it's a good thing. You know, I don't want to oversell the violence there, but but the tension is what matters, and the resolution of that tension. Um, so crowned with the ears of corn, now come into the pipe, sing harvest home. That is, you've you've um, corn. There means what, by the way? Wheat. Wheat. Yes. Always remember that in England the word corn means wheat. It means grains in general, but what it doesn't mean are is corn on the cob, um, and it never means that in England. Um, the corn laws are not laws about what we call corn. Um, so, um, so basically crowned with ears of wheat. That is, just imagine a chaplet made of an ear of wheat. Um, so they've done the harvesting, and they take a, and there's extra enough that they can that they can um, weave chaplets for themselves. So crowned with the ears of corn, now come into the pipe, sing Harvest Home. That is, sing this very song, Harvest Home, but also sing the Harvest Home. Um, where's the pipe coming from? Where do shepherds get pipes? From Pan. Where does Pan get his pipes? Anyone know? They're reeds. That is, the whole idea of pastoral is not, oh, my tonette, I am going to play it. Um, but it's that you take a reed, which is what happens when, um, when grain is ready to be, um, to go to seed, which is where the phrase go to seed comes from. It means that the stalk is now empty. Um, and you can take the stalk and um, play it. And that's why shepherds, what they do is they grab a stalk and they pipe. That's the pastoral idea. So to the pipes sing Harvest Home, um, partly because the pipes are also what you're harvesting. Come forth, my Lord. Who's the Lord? The um, Earl of Westmoreland. Yes, Mildmate, the Earl of Westmoreland. So it's not only, so he's singing not only to the Sons of Summer, but also to their lord in this feudal, late feudal, or landlord-tenant-farmer um, relationship. Come forth, my lord, um, and see the cart dressed up with all the country art. What do you think country art there means? Props. Props. No, yeah. Crops. crops. Okay. Yeah. Props and crops. Uh, <laughs> Fast food for theatrical persons. <laughs> um, <laughs> what were you going to say, Justy? I was going to say the same thing. The, the ears of corn, as it were. Uh, okay. Um, olives and grapes. Olives and grapes. Um, it also means crude art. That is the art of country people. Um, that is what they've done is they've is um, they're dressing up the cart with with those things because that's um, um, what they do. Um, and um, this is, this is uh, part of the festivity. Um, and, you know, it's, it's like country fair festivity. Um, you know, if you go to a country fair and um, people are decorating their booths and things like that, um, they decorate them with country art. It means um, naive might be 
um, a not, not in the negative sense of naive, but in the sense that um, Henri Rousseau belongs to the school of naive painting. Um, utterly gorgeous, but not, um, um, not academic, the opposite of academic. Um, so see here a mawkin um, that is a maypole or, or, well, what's the note? A pole bound with cloth uses a scarecrow. Okay, so see here a mawkin. They're a sheet as spotless pure as it is sweet. Um, so they're decorating the um, cart with um, scarecrows and with, with um, beautiful spotless um, sheets. Um, oh, actually, Han, you should be reading this. Uh, why don't you read through um, through 18? See here a mocking there a sheet, as spotless pure as it, as it is sweet. The horses, mares, and frisking fillies, clad all in linen, white as lilies. The harvest swains and wenches bound for joy to see the hawk cart crowned. About the cart, here, how the rout of rural younglings raise the shout. Pressing before, some coming after, those with the shout and these with laughter. Okay, so so they've dressed the card in white sheets. It's all over. It's not a question of um, they're not sweating anymore. They're not dirty anymore. They're done with the harvest. And so they put on the cleanest of sheets to, to decorate the hawk cart. Um, and all the kids are running around. Um, the rural younglings, um, all the little kids are shouting with joy, pressing before, that is running in front of the cart, some coming after. Um, those with a shout, those who are pressing before, um, do it with a shout, and these with laughter. Um, so some are shouting and they're boisterous and some are enjoying the whole thing and they're laughing. Um, again, it's you could just see this as a quick list of all the people there, but um, Herrick is really his, he makes these very subtle um, or tender differentiations. Um, the more boisterous are the ones who are in front of the cart, and then there are those who come after and who are just enjoying the whole thing without having to press um, in front of it. Um, you probably know that um, those always, those um, means the former and these means the latter. Um, that's a general rule in grammar that's kind of um, losing itself in the wilds of different than and referencing. Mm -hmm. um, but those here means um, the former, that is those who are pressing before, and these means the latter, these because it's closer. Um, those are the, so if you have, the reason it's former and the latter is that the former is farther away from the pronoun these or this, and the latter is closer to it. Um, so, um, let's do Daniel from line 19 through uh, 25. Some bless the cart, some kiss the sheep, some print and with open ears, some cross the fill horse, some with great devotion, stroke the home born wheat, Will other rustics bless attempt the prayers than to Keep going. Oh, run after with their breeches right. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So there are those who are who are blessing the harvest um, and see the you know the holiness of um, both its success and its promise. They're full of gratitude and they're full of hope. 
um, and um, are blessing the implements that make it possible to um, reap all this um, plenty. Some bless the cart, some kiss the sheaves, that is the sheaves of wheat. Um, some prank them up with oaken leaves um, and um, treat them as though they're, that they're godlike, um, giving them, giving them um, crowning them with oak leaves. Um, some cross the fill horse, that is, uh, make the sign of the cross on it. Um, the the um, horse that's bringing everything, they're blessed as well. Some with great devotion, or devotion, stroke the home-born wheat. So the wheat's on its way home. While other rustics less attent, that is, who care less, who are less um, concerned with prayers than with merriment, while others, while other rustics less attend to prayers than to merriment, run after with their breeches rent. Um, so their their pants are ripped. They don't care. Um, for them, it's all um, carnival. It's all a party. It's Bourbon Street. Um, um, Abby, do you want to read to? I don't know. I guess line thirty-four. Well, on, brave boys, to your Lord's hearth, glittering with fire, where, for your mirth, ye shall see the first, see first the large and chief foundation of your feast, that be. With upper stories, mutton, veal, and bacon, which makes full the meal, with several dishes standing by, and here custard, there a pie, and all here, and here all tempting from and tie. Great. Um, this is not a vegetarian poem. Um, <laughs> um, how is this like to Penshurst? Uh, excuse me, not to not so much to Penshurst. How is this like inviting a friend to supper? Listing all the foods yeah. that, are be, that will be there. Yeah, so it's a list of all the foods, and it's a list that um, in... Johnson, as in Herrick, is implying wealth. That is, you could say that if you can make a poem out of the description of your meal, it must mean because you have a lot of choices as to what will rhyme with what. Um, and um, so the very fact that um, he can describe this meal, list what's in it, um, and make them rhyme is an indication of just um, how much pleasure they'll take. Um, who's giving the meal? Herrick. No? Mildman. Yeah. Yeah, Herrick is, it's interesting to ask who the observer of all this is. Um, there is a figure, Herrick, calling come both to the harvesters and to the Lord. Um, and he's a kind of... Um, he knows what's going on. He's watching it, but from what position? Um, in a way, the point is that the fact that he has no position to watch it from is his own, it's a version of the pathetic fallacy. That is, he's everywhere. Um, he sees what's going on. It's all meaningful and lively and part of one great action or interaction for him. He's not a person saying, come to dinner at my house, as Johnson does, nor is a person saying, I'm so glad to be coming to dinner at your house after working my um, buttocks off 
um, getting rid of these stupid vines and helping um, um, uh, harvest the wheat. Um, he's observing it um, everywhere, and he's observing it as, as this um, wonderful, ebullient time. Um, yeah? Herrick never married, right? Um, I, I don't think so. It's, there's not, his life is not really that well known. Um, but I'm pretty sure he didn't. So I was just wondering if in the 17th century, like a bachelor would entertain um, inviting friends over? Or well, he was a priest. Um, oh, so right. So in that capacity, he probably... Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> um, entertain and be entertained. Yeah, I mean, you can, you can tell that he had a lot of friends and that they had a lot of good times. Um, and he had a maid, but that doesn't mean that much. But he does write that little elegy to his maid, Prue. Um, and uh, um, he was clearly a very sociable person. Um, and Mild May really liked him. Um, so, so come to this feast. There's a feast for the farmers. So that's a good thing, too, right? So how's this, how is this making you feel about Mild May, about the Lord? Um, who's coming out to meet the um, workers, the farmers. Like he's very liberal, very generous. Yeah. Very and kind of like he's part, I mean, it gives a, a communal sense to the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's another, it's another one of those Downton Abbey um, mm -hmm. moments, um, but more so. Um, that is, everyone's in a great mood. Everyone is having fun. The Lord is—it's—he's—he's he's not. Um, not oppressing anyone. He's not oppressing anyone, and he's not like uh, Maggie Smith and Downton Abbey looking down. Um, he's much more like Lord Grantham, um, not saying, "Oh, these people." Um, but no, it's great. We're all in this together. You know, it's—it's. It's, um, we're all makers, really. Yeah, um, they don't seem like servants. They just are like they're serving him. It seems like they're all making the dinner together. Somehow. Yeah, and it's it's a it's a vision. It is the it is Lord Grantham's vision in Down Abbey, and it's a vision of a very typical English vision of um, social um, of of a social um, disposition or organization where um, class differences don't imply, and class hierarchies don't imply um, fundamentally superior and inferior statuses in the world, but simply different statuses. That is, that the way the whole thing goes is that everyone um, likes contributing what they contribute. And um, the Lord contributes um, the feast, and the farmers contribute the harvest, and um, they all enjoy it, and they're all in it together. And it's a kind of strange, simultaneously hierarchical and um, democratic vision, which is a huge part of English ideology. Um, that is that people, at least the way um, England presented itself, and you know, at least until the 1950s or the 1940s, is that um, everyone preferred his or her own class to any other class. Mm -hmm. 
Um, that is the idea. It's not that those in the lower class were thinking, boy, if only we were rich, if only I were rich, I'd be happy. The idea was, you know, being in the lower class, that's the best thing you can possibly be because that's what makes England so great. Um, and you shouldn't get above yourself because then you're not seeing how great it is to lead this kind of life. Um, and sociologically, that's what people answered in surveys, is that um, England was actually pretty astonishing in um, the non-class resentment to be found there. Um, the, the sense that people had of not wanting to change the class that they were in. And the idea here is, yeah, everyone's having a good time. That's the Downton Abbey view, um, that, that uh, the servant Carson and Lord Grantham can be best friends, even though one is the other's um, valet. And um, you get the same thing in P.G. Woodhouse, although for him it's much more ironic. But in P.G. Woodhouse, there's um, the servants have just complete contempt for the masters. And there's one, uh, do you guys know about Jeeves and about P.G. Woodhouse? Um, if you don't, um, you're actually incredibly lucky because um, <laughs> there is so much and it's so wonderful to read. What I would actually recommend to you, which most people won't recommend to you, but I would really, really, really strongly re recommend to you the Smith novels, not the, the Worcester and Jeeves novels everyone knows about, even if you've never read them, and you probably think you know what they're like even though you don't, um, but it doesn't matter. The Smith novels you won't know about at all, um, and uh, Smith is spelt P-S-M-I-T-H. <laughs> Sorry? He wrote down what you said, and then he said, you said how to spell it, and he was like... <laughs> Um, a silent P, like in Shaw. Um, oh, Shaw! <laughs> um, and uh, Smith is just, he's a totally wonderful character. Um, he's um, a young aristocratic man who is also a communist and calls everyone comrade, but he's also, <laughs> he's also very aristocratic, and he's sublimely... Um, um, uh, serene under all circumstances. Uh, the adverb most often used about him is courteously. Um, and it's like a, a um, thug will be about to beat him up and um, one moment, said Smith courteously. Um, and uh, he's just really a wonderful character. So if you, if you want to know how wonderful he is, I would say the last Smith novel might be the best, the one called Leave it to Smith. And um, and it's a page turner, and it's just great, and it's the, it's it's got a Herrickian Herrickian ease about it. Um, that is, Woodhouse is just such an amazingly wonderful writer, and just so easy to read, but rich at the same time, in the same way that Herrick is, except it's prose. Um, so. Um, but that Woodhouse view of things, where um, in one novel, Bertie Wooster. Um, for some reason wants to um, eat with the servants and Jeeves absolutely um, uh, refuses his permission um, and he's outraged that Worcester would think himself entitled to eat with the servants. How could he possibly think that? Um, what an aristocratic moron um, imagining that he was entitled to such things. Um, and um, 
the whole point about the Jeeves and Worcester novels is that Jeeves is um, about 10,000 times as smart as Worcester, and they both know it, and it's fine with both of them. Um, and that's, that's sort of um, what Woodhouse is giving you is a kind of um, loving parody of this view of England where the servants would much rather be servants than the masters, and of course the masters naturally would rather be masters than servants. Um, so you're getting some of that here. So come to the feast. Um, your Lord's hearth will no doubt be smiling to itself, um, glittering with fire where for your mirth you shall see first the large and chief foundation of your feast, fat beef with upper stories. So it's being described as a building. The foundation is beef, and then there's a building, upper stories, mutton, veal, and bacon, um, which makes full the meal. <laughs> I would say so. <laughs> um, with several dishes standing by as here a custard, there a pie, and here all tempting frumen tea. Um, so all, this, uh, all these wonderful desserts after you eat, it's quite the buffet. Um, and um, Taylor, can you go to um, maybe line 43? And for to make merry cheer, a smirking wine be, be wanting here. There's that which drowns all care, stout beer, which freely drink to your Lord's health. Then to the plow, the commonwealth, next to your flails, your fans, your fats. Then to the maids with wheaten hats, to the rough sickle and crooked scythe. Drink frolic boys till all on you blood. Great. So... Um, so, so if there isn't fancy wine here, wine here, there's something that might even be better. Um, that which drowns all care. Beer. Yeah, and in particular, stout beer that is like Guinness's, um, the kind of beer called stout. Um, he's not saying, oh yeah, that beer is a little bit stout. Uh, I've been drinking too much beer. Um, but a particular kind of fairly high alcohol beer. Um, so. Um, I know you guys are mainly too young to drink, so I had to give you that information. Um, uh, it's funny because we're not. What? It's funny because it's not true. Are you 21? 22. I think oh, most people just yeah, 21. Oh, are you? Oh. Okay. Grad right. students in this room, so. Well, yeah. Um, all right. So, good. You're old enough to drink. When I was in college, drinking age was 18. It's not good for us. <laughs> Not that it made a difference. <laughs> um, it, wouldn't have made, it wouldn't have made a difference anyhow. But um, still, uh, there was officially a tang team. Did your uncle ever tell you about tang teams? No. So, tang. yeah, the tang team, each um, intramurally, intramurally, one of the intramural sports was... Um, who could drink more beer, which team could drink more pitchers of beer faster. Oh, that's awesome. Um, that's horrible. Did you see that's awesome? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and to be on the tank team, you just had to be 18. So There are no tryouts. Uh, there were tryouts, but <laughs> it, it wasn't clear when the tryout ended. <laughs> <laughs> Very informal. This is awesome. Yeah, and it was officially, it was officially uh, sanctioned. And by you the university. competed really? against other teams, other schools. No, no, no. Uh, other, it was intramural. Okay. Oh, so okay, okay, okay. Against other yeah, no, we were, yeah. I thought it was a club right. or something. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I think the road team might be in trouble. 
No, 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 no. It was, it was all done in, in the dorms and dining halls. But boy, was it ever done. Just, uh, I guess. just Were you on the team? Yes, yes, he was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's all. It drowned all cares. Um, which brings us back. Which brings us back to the Um There's that which drowns all cares. Stout beer, which freely drink to your Lord's health. So drink all this beer. Drink it to the health of, of Mild May. Um, then drink to the plow, the commonwealth. Um, so the plow is the commonwealth. That is, it's what is owned by everyone and makes wealth possible. But also to the commonwealth, also to England itself. Um, next to your flails, your fans, your fats, which there means vats. Um, so drink to all your implements. Then to the maids with wheaten hats, that is those who've, who've woven their, their wheat chaplets. To the rough sickle and crooked scythe, drink Frolic, boys, till all be blithe. So just drink till everything is great. Um, drink to the things that, to your, to your farm implements. Um, drink to all these things till all be blithe. And then um, go on even further than that, Tammy, um, maybe to um, line, line uh, I guess just to line 46. It's not much. But. <coughs> Okay, that's, I think that's it. Sorry, did you want to read more? It's all good. So order neat there. Anyone know? Putting it will tell you. Cat. Good. <laughs> good reading of the footnotes. <laughs> How many people knew that? That the word neat means cattle? It's a plural ending with T, if you're looking for plurals that end with every letter of the alphabet, which is something that, if you're ever bored, you should. Um, it's neat. It's neat. Okay. Neat are neat. Um, if you've ever heard of neat's foot oil, or neat's foot oil, um, it's something that is used for leather, and it's actually from cattle. So neat is a word for cattle. Um, England does seem to have a slight vegetarian anxiety, <laughs> which is that um, English is actually known by linguists. This isn't the most famous thing about the English language. But it is a thing, is that um, words for meat are never named after the meat, um, or almost never named after the meat. Uh, the meat is almost never named after the animal it comes from. Um, we say um, poultry rather than chicken. We now say chicken, but you would eat poultry, which comes from chicken. You would eat mutton, which comes from or lamb or sheep. sheep. Uh, you eat beef, which comes from cows. Meat. Sorry? Meat. Yeah. And um, pork, which comes from pigs. Um, so people don't say, oh, yeah, we'll have some pig for dinner. Um, Going to eat a little cow and then some pig. Um, and there does seem to be for for it, it's always the 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 name of the meat is the French word. Except not for chicken. They say chicken. No poultry. Yeah, in uh, England they don't. In oh, England really? they say poultry. Yes. Huh. Um, which is um, poulet. So yeah, it, so it's a it's an interesting um, uh, factoid that um, English names for animal foods tend to be the French names of the animals. Um, whereas, sorry? Why? Why is that? Because um, 
being sensitive. Or? Yeah, because because the English like their meat, but like to think of themselves as vegetarians. Too <laughs> yeah. Now it's it's not clear, but it does seem some people think it speaks some sort of bad conscience, um, and uh, you know that that seems unlikely to me. But um, those of you who are not vegetarian, would you rather eat pork or pig? Whatever. Okay, as long as it tastes yeah. good. <laughs> okay. I'm an omnivore. I'll eat anything. All right. So you wouldn't mind Humans. saying. Uh, okay. <laughs> I'm kidding. Well, you know, but Pet always does that. They say, so how's that dead cow on your plate? Yeah, I'd be like, great. It's good, I know Yeah, I know, yeah. In Vietnamese, we just say, you know, meat cow, meat pig. Uh-huh. And I, I've never even thought of it. That's the same with Japanese, yeah. Yeah. There's yeah. no... Yeah. All right, well, it is... A, it's it, bleeding. It's like there's fat on it. You know it's something. <laughs> <laughs> you know it's not, yeah. I don't know. Okay, so yeah, dog, kitty cat. I mean, that'd be nasty. I would need a dog. Kitty cat. I probably would if you didn't tell me what it was and you put it over Caesar salad. But you probably. Oh. <laughs> but <laughs> if, anything edible. Caesar salad. Yeah, it does. Einstein's is proof. Okay. Anyhow, so that was just a footnote. <laughs> that was just a pointless little footnote. Except that now, except that, um, what he's saying is, don't forget. The laboring neat. That is, don't forget, um, it's actually cattle is probably a wrong footnote there. It should be oxen. Um, that is, those who are helping the pl- helping to plow. It's the oxen um, who pull the plow. Do people know what oxen are? So you learn astronomy and you'll also learn a little bit of um, husbandry. Uh, what makes an ox an ox? The bulls that aren't used for mating. And how are the bulls prevented from being used for mating? Castration. Yes, castrated bulls, um, as hogs or castrated pigs. Um, so don't forget them. They labor. Um, their, their energy goes into slow plodding strength rather than fast, frisky uncontrollability. Um, so don't forget them. Feed and grow fat, and as ye eat, be mindful that the laboring neat as you may have their fill of meat. Um, one thing you should notice is that we're getting more triple rhymes as we go through this poem. It's part of the pileup of celebration. Um, that is, um, we have buy, pie, frumenty, cheer, hear, beer, um, and then eat, neat, meat. Um, so triple rhymes are just a, a standard permissible variation of couplets. Um, and it's not like, oh my god, there's no regularity to these triple rhymes. I just don't understand. Um, it's rather, it, they're grace notes. Um, triple rhymes are grace notes. Um, those of you who took 18th century poetry will know that Pope was against them because he did think that they disturbed the flow of poetry too much and thought they should only be used um, when they made a point. Um, but generally, if you come up with a couplet and then there's a third line that will rhyme with it, you just throw it in. Um, but here it's as though the wealth, again, remember these rhymes stand for the wealth of the feast. Uh, the more you can rhyme, the more it bespeaks how much is available, and the triple rhymes here are also showing that. Um, so don't forget um, the laboring neat as you, so that they, as you may have their fill of meat. Meat there is meaning food. Um, it doesn't mean animal food the way it does for us. Um, it means simply food. Um, 
And let's see. Um, do you want to go, Jeannie? I guess. Would it be to finish the poem? Well, there's one after 50. Oh, yes. Okay, so go to line 50, Jeannie. And no. Oh, and no, besides, you must provoke the patient ox unto the yoke, and I'll go back unto the plow and harrow, though they're hanged up now. Okay, so um, one reason not to forget the laboring need is um, that the ox has to go back to, has to be called back to the yoke. That is, so remember, they work just the way you do. Be mindful of them. And remember, and no, but it's but no. There means both remember and um, take it in as a fact. And no, besides, e must revoke. Revoke there means to call back. Our word revoke, like when you revoke a penalty, means that you call it off. Um, you call it back or call it off. So if you revoke a penalty or revoke um, privileges. Um, it means that you're calling the penalty or the privileges off. If you revoke an ox, you're calling the ox back again. Um, so it's not different from our word, although it feels different because we almost always talk about revoking a condition. But in this case, it's the ox, the ox itself that will be revoked back to the yoke. Um, and no, besides, you must revoke the patient ox unto the yoke. Why is the ox patient? Because it doesn't get... Well, because it's castrated? Yeah. Is that what you're... Yeah. So it doesn't get... Ex doesn't get excited, yeah. Right. Um, oxen are patient. Yeah, that's the whole point, is that they are patient. Um, and, you know, they're, they are a... Um, um, uh, an icon of patience, of um, of um, willingness to um, um, just take things as they are. Um, why is he reminding us of that? Because doesn't he want us? To, I don't know. For gra because of gratitude, because we're, they're all making it together, and it's like they're part of the they're part of this whole process. Yeah, and so that being patient is a virtue. Yeah. Um, and the uh, so that's right. So the ox is um, the patient ox is um, you have to call it back to work, and it'll go back to work because it's patient because it's got that virtue. So you must revoke the patient uh, call back the patient ox unto the yoke, and all go back unto the plow and harrow, though they're hanged up now. So who's the all there? Everyone in the poem. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, not only the ox, but everyone has to go back to the plow and harrow. Um, the harrow is, is um, what, um, do people know what it is? It's essentially what rakes like, the soil yeah. um, into lines that you can then sow. Um, so a harrow is, they're, they're the scariest of farm implements um, because they're sharp blades, just a, just a bunch of sharp blades that get pulled across the land. Is that where we get harrowing from? Yes, um, because what you don't want is for a harrow to go over you. <laughs> um, no, that is what harrowing is from. It's torture. It's, it's, it's your, it, the torture of being harrowed is, is to have a harrow um, move across or down your body. Um, so that is where we get harrowing 
from. Um, it's a harrowing image, isn't it? <laughs> that would be the point. Yes, literally and figuratively. So you have to go back onto the plow and harrow. Um, and that's supposed to be a little bit, oh, no's. Um, though they're hanged up now. Um, and um, I guess we're back to you, Justin. And you must know your Lord's words true. Feed him ye must whose food fills you. And that his pleasure is like rain. That this pleasure. That this pleasure is like rain. Not sent ye for to drown your pain, but for to make it spring again. Yeah, so suddenly there's quite an unexpected modulation in the poem, which is this idea that um, everyone is in this together and we're all equal and all having a good time turns into something else. You have to go back to the plow and harrow, though they're hanged up now, and you must know. So you have to, so notice the series of verbs here. Um, first it's eat, drink, frolic, feed, grow fat, and be mindful, and know. And another thing you have to know is that what your Lord said is true, that you have to feed him whose food fills you. So how does that work? Feed him ye must whose food fills you. Ingratiate or no? No, no I think it's... Be, I mean, be productive for mild may would be the ostensible thing, but it sounds to me almost like he's starting to shift not to a different lord, like he's starting to talk about God. Yeah, um, and... be grateful. <laughs> yeah, um, and your lord... and But it's also partly that mild may is starting to um, act in a lordly manner towards them. That is, he tells them something that they have to believe. That is, you're going to have to take this in. That he's telling you something which is a little bit of a warning as well as a celebration. That you have to feed him because his, his food fills you. So how is it his food? Yeah. Because it's, he owns the food that you produce. So this actually is um, a proto-Marxist moment. Mm. That is, he owns the means of production, mm -hmm. is um, the way Marx, I know you guys don't read Marx, but you should. Mm -hmm. um, but that's the way, that's the way Marx, that's the, that's the um, economic distinction that Marx is making. And it's a true one. What it, its consequences may not be what Marx said they were. Um, but the description is true, that he, the Lord, owns the means of production, um, and therefore he owns the food produced, but the production itself is done by the farmers, by the laborers. So the means of production are owned by the Lord, but the laborers do the production, do the producing. And um, so it's not that Mild May could feed himself. He can't. You have to feed him. Feed him ye must. Um, but that's if you want to eat the food that he owns, which is the only food there is. So suddenly the, this, this kind of um, possibly wonderful but also possibly sappy vision of everyone um, happily working together to do all this from the highest to the lowest. Sorry, it's like the Buddhist parable about heaven and hell. 
What is, oh. The, the spoons, the long spoons. Yeah, yeah, people feeding each other. Um, but in this case, it's they're all feeding the uh, Lord, right. and then they get to eat some of it themselves. Right. Um, so feed him ye must. You have no choice. If you want to eat, you have to feed him. Feed him ye must whose food fills you. Um, all those Fs. Feed him whose food fills you. And you must know something else. That this pleasure is like rain. The pleasure of all this food, of all this partying. That this pleasure is like rain. Not sent ye for to drown your pain. So pain there is a, quite a strong word. But all this pleasure, it isn't to drown your pain as you might have thought but for to make it spring again. Meaning what? Well, the next, the next growing season. That is for your pain to spring up the way um, grass springs in what season? Spring. The spring. That's why it's called the spring. It's because that's when um, plants spring out of the earth again. Um, and so... Everything that you're giving, you're being given now is like rain, not so that you can drown your pain and be happy from, from here on in, but to get you ready for next spring, the noun, for to make it spring again, um, like for to make it autumn again. That is, spring there is both a noun and a verb. Um, just as harrow is probably both a noun um, and a verb in uh, line 50. Um, and all go back onto the plow and harrow. That is, plow and harrow might be the object of um, the preposition onto. All go back onto the plow and all go back onto the harrow. But it can also be all go back onto the plow and do what? And harrow when you go back to it. And now we get this pleasure is like rain, not sent ye for to drown your pain, but for to make it spring again um, in order to make spring come and in order to make your pain spring again. That is, your labor, when spring comes, your pain will grow with it, um, will spring up again. So suddenly springtime is not a happy time here. <laughs> it's the um, year's birth of pain. Um, it's almost as though April were, I don't know, the cruelest month. Um, Okay. Um, so I think that's a really, 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 really great poem, um, and um, very unexpected. Okay, let's. We have two minutes. Let's just go look at "To the Virgins to Make Much of Time" was uh, the wonderful Carpe Diem poem. We're going to see more Carpe Diem poems when we get to Marvell. Although for next week we'll be reading Herbert. Um, I wanted to read the nipple poem. <laughs> okay, which one? Upon the nipples of Julius. Okay, okay. It's okay, it's okay. No, read it. What page? <laughs> oh, I have a different edition. I don't know. Okay, well, just go read it. <laughs> have ye beheld with much delight a red rose peeping through a white, or else a cherry double graced within a lily center placed, or ever marked the pretty beam a strawberry shows half drowned in cream, or seen rich rubies blushing through? A, pearl, a pure, smooth pearl, and orient too, so like to this, nay, all the rest, is each neat niplet of her breast. 
Yes. <laughs> All right. And to the virgins to make much of time is page 195. Gather ye rosebuds while ye may. Everyone thinks that ye is your, but it's not. It's you, you should do this. Ye, gather ye around is how you might say it. It's a reflexive verb. So gather ye rosebuds while ye may. Gather them while you can. And the amazing thing is that it's um, both the virgins and the rosebuds are early. That's the point. They're early in their lives. The rosebuds are not yet the roses, and the virgins are not yet the grown uh, mature women. But do it. Gather ye rosebuds while ye may. Old time is still a-flying, and this same flower that smiles today, tomorrow will be dying. The glorious lamp of heaven, the sun, the higher he's a-getting, the sooner will his race be run, and nearer he's to setting. That age is best, which is the first, when youth and blood are warmer, but being spent the worse and worst times still succeed the former. Then be not coy, but use your time, and while ye may go marry, for having lost but once your prime, you may forever tarry. Um, so it sounds a little bit chaste at the end. So you're young, you better get married. But um, there's also an implication here, which is there's plenty of time to marry when you're a little bit older. Um, that is, take the while ye may there to mean when you, when you want to, fine, get married then. But in the meantime, and tarry in marriage when you're ready to, but in the meantime, before you get married, go gather those rosebuds. All right, so um, see you in a week. <coughs> I'm going to forget and show up. Do you want a reminder?